Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. With emerging research showing that the diet of pregnant women and children under the age of two can have a powerful impact on children's brain development and future health, the upcoming recommendations for the 2020 Dietary Guidelines will for the first time ever, include suggestions for the first 1,000 days of life. Until now, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans has provided dietary advice for people two years of age and older, prompting caregivers and healthcare professionals to turn to disparate source of resources to figure out the best diet for pregnant women, infant, and young children. These include famous books such as What to Expect When You're Expecting and guidelines from various organizations such as the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics. And while these are all influential and well-researched recommendations, by bringing this group under the purview of the broader dietary guidelines for Americans, the U.S. government will for the first time take ownership of them, a move that will provide consistency that so far has been lacking. The move is also a double-edged sword for the CPG industry. Some hope that including this group in the broader dietary guidelines for Americans will protect them from undue corporate influence, while others see potential opportunities for innovative manufacturers creating solutions to help Americans meet those recommendations. While we won't know for sure what the guidelines will include until the recommendations are released and vetted, this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast explores some of the themes, suggestions, and questions that dietitians and industry players would like to see addressed and how these issues might impact CPG manufacturers. Even though the Dietary Guidelines for Americans are designed with healthcare professionals in mind and therefore aren't very consumer-friendly, Amy Kimmerlin, a registered dietitian who specializes in children's nutrition and who's a spokeswoman for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, explained at the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo in Philadelphia last month that the inclusion of recommendations for the first 1,000 days of life is a critical first step to improving the lives of women and children in the U.S. So the dietary guidelines allow for general recommendations for healthy Americans across the, the population. And so now with the introduction of looking at the first 1,000 days, we're obviously going to pay closer attention to now not only infants and toddlers, but also prenatally as well. But you're setting general guidelines that allow for people to look and reflect to see what changes they may need to make in order to improve their health over the long run. We're on the forefront of looking at science-based information in order to base these guidelines on. So I think it's allowing for us to be able to make an implicate, you know, a change early on in order to help prevent chronic diseases, which is where and why it's become so important and critical to include at this time. And I, I'm excited for what's on the horizon with these new guidelines to come out because I think this is how people can help to shape and form some of the decisions that they make within food in order to, again, improve their health. Um, and it's one change at a time, one step at a time is what I tell people. In particular, Kimberlane said that she's hoping the recommendations not only talk about much-needed nutrients during this critical time in a child's development, but also more about what and how much pregnant women need to consume to keep themselves healthy. 
This includes advice around how many extra calories do women actually need when they're, quote, eating for two, and guidance on how much weight they should expect to gain and still remain healthy, as well as how diet can help manage potential complications. So for prenatal, again, what you would be looking at are certain essential nutrients within the different stages, whether it's a first trimester, second trimester, or third trimester, your first starting point would be looking at total weight gain and allowing the mother to be able to understand how much weight that she should gain and, and obviously then putting that into actual practical applications of what would be recommendations of what she can eat. And so I think that that's a good guidance point for people to be able to see across a spectrum and avoiding too much weight gain as well, right? But you're looking at over a nine-month period and dividing it into the, each trimester so that they understand for the growth of and development of the baby, again, how much weight that they should gain. So that's kind of one of the first conversations I have with prenatal women. And then now you're also looking at, again, if they have complications such as hyperemesis gravidum, right, where now they can't keep anything down, <laughs> right, because of a morning sickness. It's just the technical term for it, right? But all of those are different situations that could arise within the first trimester. And again, making sure not only mom is nourished, but also the baby. The baby will always be nourished, but making sure mom is nourished as well. And so again, the certain key nutrients that you're looking at would be the omega-3 fatty acids. And so making sure that they're supplemented with that possibly if they're not able to get it through a food form. So obviously food first and then looking at extra supplementation during this critical time period. Um, folic acid is also one to help with the baby's brain development. And again, where you might target something like a whole grain or, or oranges and orange juice, those are all food sources. But again, you're making sure to supply an ample amount if they're not able to get it in a food form, along with a prenatal vitamin, right? But that makes sure, again, that they're still receiving the nutrients that they need. Iron is another one um, where, again, it could be through a plant-based source or an, or an animal-based source, but you're making sure to include the extra additional items throughout the pregnancy. So some of these key nutrients, and there's more, I just mentioned a few to get started, those are where you have the specific guidelines based on this science-based information. Now we can make it directly impact so that prenatal women can get this information and also make sure that they're al allowing themselves to understand how to apply it in an actual way versus just talking outside about needing all these supplementations, but how do you make it a real life example? And so they may do it with a plate. Example is sometimes how I'll do. And so half of a plate being from green leafy vegetables, the non-starchy version, a quarter of the plate being from protein and a quarter of the plate being from whole grains. And so a lot of times, sometimes you might think that you need so much extra during pregnancy, but it's just still trying to create almost like a plan of when they'll eat and then showing them examples of actual real life food samples that they can eat, whether it's a breakfast and it's oatmeal now with some walnuts with those omega-3s thrown in. And again, maybe a few pieces of fruit on top sprinkled with some nuts or seeds. So again, a really whole balanced meal. And now you're getting every component of what we just described. So it's not a plate, it's a bowl, right? But all of those are ways to show real life application based on these guidelines now and putting it into practice. And I also have a background in diabetes. So like what a lot of times too within gestational diabetes, that's another key component where if they were diagnosed at around 28 weeks, if they have an oral glucose tolerance test that comes back and it's irregular, I think that's where food can even be more critical to show moms, you, you know, again, you can still control it within and have controlled blood sugars. It's just a little bit of a, I, you know, 
shift in what it might be and where you said, do they have to have two snacks? Maybe not necessarily because that could affect a blood sugar. So yeah, it, it, could it get complicated? Yes, but that's why, again, we're targeting to have overall health within. Drilling deeper into what the guidelines might include for expecting women, Christy King, who is also a spokeswoman for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, as well as the senior pediatrician dietitian at the Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, says she hopes the guidelines will include specific recommendations about choline intake. She explained that choline is, quote, an underrated nutrient that we're just now starting to figure out that within the first 1,000 days is so incredibly important for infants and brain development. I'm really, really hopeful, keeping my fingers crossed, that if it does come out that we do need to address choline that manufacturers of these prenatal vitamins and children's complete multivitamins really look at their products because um, they may not be getting enough in their diet. And so if a mom is relying on, you know, prenatal or um, a child is maybe a picky eater and not eating um, enough choline in their diet, that manufacturers will be able to look at their products and say, hey, I think we can add some choline into the supplement um, to really help help out. As an early mover on this in the supplement side is Life Extension, which is a Fort Lauderdale, Florida-based company that launched at Fancy its prenatal advantage multivitamin. Now, like most other prenatal supplements, Life Extension's prenatal advantage includes folic acid and DHA, which have long been recognized as essential for developing infants. But it's also one of the first and only prenatal supplements to include choline. On the food side, one of the best sources of choline are eggs, one of which provides 25% of the recommended daily value. Mickey Rubin, the executive director of the American Egg Board's Egg Nutrition Center, Explain the importance of eggs in providing choline as well as more generally supporting maternal and infant health. It's really important that the committee is looking at this area because you look back at, in 2018, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics published a uh, what they call a policy statement on nutrition during the first thousand days in which they reviewed, um, you know, nutrients that are important for neurodevelopment. And so one of, the, one of the striking things about that review, if you go back and take a look at it, you know, they say that, you know, failure to provide key nutrients during this time period may result in lifelong deficits. So if you're not getting the nutrition, uh, if you're, you know, infants and toddlers are not getting the nutrition during this critical time period, they might not actually fully recover from that later in life. And they listed a lot of nutrients that are important, uh, while, you know, while a diverse, you know, list of nutrients are important during this time period, um, choline was, uh, was on that list. Uh, and choline, it's, it's really essential for neural development, and there's a lot of re- interesting research now showing that maternal intake of choline, so intake of choline by pregnant moms, uh, has an impact on cognitive function of their children later in life. Uh, you know, there's some research that's even taking up to age seven, showing an impact of those mothers who had the most choline and then looking at uh, cognitive function uh, with their children up until, you know, you know, age seven, showing benefits. Despite the importance of choline into developing infants, very few expecting mothers, as well as healthcare professionals, are familiar with it. 
so Egg Nutrition Center commissioned a survey um, about a year or so ago uh, with a research firm, Ipsos. And what we found was we surveyed uh, new and expecting mothers and found that really only 25% are actually aware of choline. You know, we compare that to 90% who are aware of folic acids. And even more alarming, that same survey looked at, uh, also surveyed also uh, health professionals, so OBGYNs and pediatricians. And, you know, only about... Um, only about a little more than half of those health professionals were actually aware of choline. So I think the thing that's probably limiting uh, limiting us is, is just awareness in general. Beyond choline, Rubin says that the high amount of lutein in eggs can also support infants' cognitive development. Lutein is an interesting one because uh, it's lutein, lutein is a carotenoid. Uh, sometimes, you know, people refer to lutein as a bioactive, and it's and it's really responsible for the pigment of an egg. You know, so the yellow pigment of the egg yolk is is due to the lutein content. You also find lutein in other foods like green leafy vegetables. That's you know that's where you really find you know um, you know that's lutein being responsible for that dark green uh, pigment in green leafy vegetables. And as you said, lutein uh, up until relatively recently uh, has been appreciated for its role in eye health and uh, lutein being associated with uh, reduced risk for macular degeneration. Uh, but what, what's really interesting lately is that the research is linking uh, lutein consumption and then uh, consequential to, uh, to lutein consumption is increases in macular pigment because the lutein actually accumulates in the eye uh, 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 after you consume uh, you know, lutein rich foods. Uh, macular pigment in and of itself is linked to uh, cognitive function, uh, favorably linked to cognitive function. So there's now research to show that um, you know, in school-age children who have higher levels of macular pigment uh, actually show uh, better academic performance. And then on the other age, end of the age spectrum as well, we're seeing links with uh, higher levels of macular pigment and uh, reduced risk of cognitive decline. So not lutein is no longer just thought of as something that's important for eye health, which is, uh, has traditionally been known for, uh, but now that uh, the, you know, the increases in the macular pigment due to uh, you know, lutein intake are now linked to cognitive performance as well. Fiber is another necessary nutrient for expecting mothers, infants, and young children. The king says that she wants the upcoming dietary guidelines to highlight. Not only does she say she wants to see stronger recommendations about how much should be consumed, but also guidance clarifying how best to get it, including, of course, fresh fruits and vegetables, but also canned and frozen produce as well. I would love to see um, an emphasis on fiber. Um, you know, I'm not sure if that's on their radar, but it is a, an issue that we do see in clinical practice where children just aren't eating enough fruits and vegetables um, and, you know, end up with GI issues and that can pro, you know, lead, go into adulthood. And I don't know if that's just because a lot of populations may not have access to the fruits and vegetables. Maybe parents or caregivers don't know how to cook the fruits and vegetables um, or how to serve them. Um, I feel like we have such mom shaming in this country, whether it's you're not breastfeeding or you gave your child something that's not organic um, or gosh forbid, you know, someone 
you know, gave a canned vegetable and somebody says, oh my gosh, that's terrible. I love canned vegetables. I love canned fruits. You know, I think that, um, you know, that's what a majority of our country has access to and it provides all the same nutrients. And so I think I would really like to see the committee focusing on overall positive reinforcement of if you get your child to eat a vegetable, you're doing a great job. You know, it's, it's not, it has to be fresh or frozen or, you know, whatever. But if, if you get your child to eat vegetables, you are doing well. If you get them to eat a fruit, you're doing well because it can be very hard um, for, for parents and caregivers. Related to fiber and gut health, King says she would also like to see in the recommendations advice around probiotics. The other thing I'd like them to kind of look at, and I don't really know if they're going to get the answers that the questions raise, is um, probiotics. And so is that helpful for our young ones? Is it harmful for our young ones? Um, What would be appropriate to use or not use? Um, Is it beneficial at all? Um, I know that there were some papers that not too long ago came out and said it's not really very beneficial for some children. So I think that's going to be another topic. Scientifically based guidance in the dietary guideline recommendations around breastfeeding versus the use of formula also likely will have a significant impact on the CPG industry, predicts King. I do think that they will, you'll also see something in regards to breastfeeding. Um, we do know breast is best, however, fed is better. So I think they will focus on breastfeeding, but also mention if a mother cannot breastfeed or chooses not to breastfeed, using a sub like a substitute that's appropriate. Um, there are many formulas that come from outside of the United States, and it may not necessarily be FDA approved, which is very concerning to us in the pediatric world. So I think um, I would like to see them address the fact that if we're not breastfeeding, then we need to use a suitable substitution that is, you know. FDA approved um, to ensure child safety as well as child nutrition. She explained it's important that caregivers choose an FDA approved formula because the agency holds them to higher standards than required by much of the world. All formulas in the world follow um, the codex requirements. So they have to meet a minimal amount of see protein, vitamins, minerals in order to be considered approved for infants. The FDA takes it a little bit step further. So that's why I'm really encourage families to choose an FDA approved formula because we do know they do have a little bit better control over safety and regulatory issues. They also hold the formula companies accountable to whatever health claims they have. So if a formula says this is good for tummy tummy health or this can prevent allergies or this can um, you know make your child the smartest one in the world, they have to have those studies to back that up. And if they don't, the FDA will tell them this is a no-go, you cannot use this. So it makes me feel very comfortable and knowing that what's on the label is 
in the product. And I think that's what is so important um, for having it to be FDA approved. And of course, you wanna make sure that it's got adequate vitamins and minerals and protein. And based on your child's needs, um, there are some you know, infant formulas that are a little bit higher calorie or um, higher calcium and phosphorus because maybe they were born prematurely. In addition to addressing infant formula, King predicts the recommendations will tackle toddler milks, for which there's not the same nutritional standard as infant formula, but about which much confusion and controversy currently swirl. The toddler formula is not absolutely necessary. Um, infant formulas were made for infant nutrition, um, and then it's made to transition to milk um, as we turn one year of age. Now, there are some medically um, medical conditions in which maybe a child isn't going to be able to transition to milk and may need a toddler formula. So there is a slight you know, niche for them, but it's not necessarily something that parents need to fall into like, oh my gosh, my, my child needs a toddler formula before they can drink regular cow's milk. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see what, what the committee comes out with. Beverages more broadly also likely will be a hot button topic in the recommendations, with experts predicting the dietary guidelines will call for significantly reduced consumption of sugary drinks, potentially including juice. It likely also expand or include recent guidelines to restrict drinks from children under five to breast milk, water, and dairy milk, with only occasional consumption of 100% fruit juice if whole fruit is not an option. While there are many other areas and questions that the upcoming guidelines for the first 1,000 days likely will address, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But I want to thank you for tuning in and hope that you'll join me again next week for another installment of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. And to ensure you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.